Welcome to another edition of San Joaquin Spotlight, a public affairs broadcast airing on Talk Radio 1550 KXCX, also on CMAC TV in Fresno and Clovis. We also have a podcast thanks to Spotify's Anchor FM. Our guest this week, I met in Fresno, but I had heard about him and the work he's doing uh, last year when he was covering the war in Armenia, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, Artsakh. And so I kind of followed him because he was actually on the ground during the war filming a documentary. And so our guest is filmmaker, documentary maker, Emil Giesen. He also has a very interesting background that we're going to talk about. Mr. Giesen, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. So I want to say that when you were filming this documentary that we are going to talk about, I was following you and there were some situations where I thought, wow, you know, he, what a, what a time to be on the ground making this documentary. But before we go there, your background, you know, you served in the elite Royal Marines. Can you tell our audience members what is that equivalent to here in the U.S.? Yeah, um, so I, I'm, I'm British. Um, I served 12 years as a War Marine Commando in the U.K. Um, so the equivalent, I suppose, to America is that we are the original Green Berets. So the Green Berets, the Rangers um, copied us, really. Um, so, yeah, we're elite force. I served um, several tours of Afghanistan and Iraq. The first time I was, I was in the military, I joined in 2000, left in 2012. Um, really, 9-11 changed very much for how the British and Americans were moving forward. Um, so very early on, I, I landed in a helicopter in Afghanistan, um, 2001, 2002, and then the invasion of Iraq, 2003, I served before two commando. And then we went back to Afghanistan. I've done several tours of Afghanistan fighting against the Taliban um, and then left in 2012. So it was a busy time. Well, and... You know, I never served in the military, and there's a part of me that regrets that decision because as someone who served in the military, you've learned some skill sets and survivor skill sets. That's military. But when you're talking Green Beret and elite Royal Marines, I mean, talk about how in-depth this training is because I doubt that they're going to let someone on an elite force like this without training them real well? Yeah, no, um, basic training for to become a, a British commando is very intense. It's, it's one of the longest trainings in the world. Um, yeah, and it sets you up. And the work I do now as a filmmaker, I definitely couldn't do what I do if I didn't have experience from the military. So it just, it just Being in the military, I recommend for anyone at a certain age that wants a venture, wants to um, experience, like being in a disciplined environment around... Um, the thing with the military, you work with your friends. It's like a, it's a, it's a life choice. It's not just a job. It's not nine to five. So I fully recommend anyone to join the military. It just sets you up and it gives you the basic fundamental um, lessons of like timekeeping, discipline, um, respect. It's all these things that every employer wants. And that's why we see military people, men and women that leave the service and go into the civilian world. Employers, um, they love it because they know what they're getting. They're getting someone who's trained to a level. But yeah, I, I enjoyed my 12 years as a commando. And like I was saying, we were very busy because obviously the war on terror was going on. 
Um, but yeah, I made some great friends uh, um, like for my whole life. I'll keep in touch. And then you at that, then you become a bodyguard, high profile bodyguard. Um, what got you into film? Because it seems like, you know, you like action. Uh, what, hmm. what what made you decide, you know what, it's time for me to shift gears and go into filmmaking? Yeah, so I le- like I said, I left the military in 2012. And for a lot of servicemen who are um, commandos, it's a natural progression straight away to move into the private security industry. So I've moved in, like you said, into um, bodyguarding. So we're doing a lot of bodyguarding work around the world and um, private security. And then there was the issue of the Somali pirates in the Indian Ocean and off the coast of Nigeria. So a lot of British uh, men went into the anti-piracy where we'd board ships, commercial vessels um, with weapons and we'd protect them from the Somali pirates that were attacking them. So I'd done that for about nine, ten months and it was just tedious. It was boring work, really. Um, and I like using my mind. I like telling stories. Um, and I like knowing things. So then I came home and then I met a guy in a bar. My, my father is a Christian Syrian from Damascus. And my family's um, on his side is still in um, Syria. And the war was going on. And I met a guy in, in a bar that said he was going to go out to Iraq and Syria to fight Islamic State. And I just thought, wow, this is an interesting story. This guy, he's a former sailor. So he's never seen combat. He wants to go to Syria to go fight ISIS, um, this feared terrorist group. And I thought, why do I not want to go do that? My family in Syria, I've got the skills to do that. Um, so I was intrigued to think, why is this guy want to do it, but not me? Um, so then I met him for a coffee the next day. And he said there was a group of Americans and Brits that were training together. And they were heading out to northern Iraq to then cross into Syria um, with the Kurds. So I just thought, I don't, I don't have any skills in, in journalism or filmmaking. So I decided, I spoke to a TV company. They said, are you interested in making a documentary? This is who I am. This is what I want to do. They said, it sounds great, but it sounds dangerous. Um, we're not going to get involved with it, really. So then one of the guys who worked for that production company said, just go buy a camera and just go do it yourself. And I was like, well, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. <laughs> so I, I, I literally went on eBay, spent, uh, I think it was $700-ish, on a camera and I drove straight to the airport in London, got on a flight, flew to Northern Iraq. And really for 18 months, I was going back and forth. And that was my first project called Robin Hood Complex, the fight against Islamic State. And it was all about humanization and what motivates these international volunteers to go fight in someone else's war. Um, And that's what I was doing. Then after that, I then won a, a scholarship to go to film school for a year. So I went to film school and during film school, they said to us, oh, you've got to make a documentary. And I was like, well, I've already made a feature documentary, a 90-minute documentary. They go, well, you've got to make another one. So the war in Ukraine was still going on, and lots of volunteer fighters were going out to Ukraine to fight. So I told the school I'm going to go to Kiev to make a documentary on um, on Kiev. And then I just went off to the front line there and started making my second feature documentary. And really, that's how it started, the second one. Um, and then from there, I do, a lot, I do lots of filming. I do lots of editing. I do um, guest speaking. I do several other things and then COVID hit and then this war started and then I was really intrigued to see what was going on and why this war was happening during the time. And that's where we, we started on, on this project. So you somehow you heard about the war in Armenia. Where were you when you heard about that? And then talk about how you got there because, you know, a lot of people won't go into war areas and, you get tell us how you got to the border. 
Yeah, so even my first project uh, and my second project is I go on my own majority of the time. Um, I generally take, I, I fund everything on my own, out of my own pocket to start with. Um, I took a taxi to Syria, took a taxi to Iraq, um, just moving around the front lines. Uh, very much on this one, when I was at home in England and I saw the war started between Armenia and Azerbaijan, I started doing some research on it um, and I was looking at the 2016 war, which was only four days. And then looking into the 90s war, and I thought, oh, by the time I pack my bags, get to the airport, fly to Armenia, the war will probably be over. Um, but then I saw it going on and on and on uh, for a few more days and the, the drone warfare and the, the misinformation and disinformation online. And I thought, right, I'm going. Um, many people ask me, why do I go to Armenia and not um, Azerbaijan, which is a classic question. Is one, um, I'm not a religious man, but I respect um religion and people that are religious i respect that and um, like i say my family are christian syrians and they've been persecuted for many years in syria um under the threat of the turks and the saudis and even americans and the brits who were supporting the free syrian army and my first documentary with the kurds like i said robin hood complex with the kurds is i've come up against a lot of um, abuse from turks over the years and i do support erdogan's um geopolitical foreign policy is spreading around um, the Middle East. And I just saw this country of Armenia, who I know a few Armenians, um, and I just thought this country, a Christian nation, that's a landlocked nation, surrounded by enemies either side and to the south of Iran, Georgia to the north, which isn't pro-Russia, um, so it's going to be anti-Armenia as such. And I thought this is an important story to tell. And so, yeah, I literally picked a flight, Landed in Yerevan, went to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to get a press accreditation. They granted it. They then went had to go to Goris to then get another press accreditation to cross into Artsakh. Um, and then from there, just took a taxi to Stepanakert during the war and then met the media centre. And from there, just went out, just breadcrumb journalism, find the story um, and what was going on. So you get there, you get to the front lines. Um, we're going to talk about the drones in a little bit, but. I mean, were you surprised at the technology? I mean, I feel like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you were there, so you know. I feel like on the Armenian side, there were less modernized than on the other side where there was Azerbaijan, Turkey, uh, Pakistan, a little bit of Israel. I, I mean, I, I feel like there was an imbalance there. Could you address that? Yeah, there was a massive imbalance um, between the Armenians and the Azeris. Um, what done is, but then again, when I was fighting against the Taliban or the Iraqi army, there was an imbalance there also. War is never fair. Um, what I saw with the Armenians was very much that the Armenian soldiers fought with their hearts. And you can see that and sense that with them is that they were fighting for their existence. And that's why we called it 45 days to fight for a nation, because they all the soldiers believed, and rightly so, that they were fighting for their existence, that they they were under threat, is Azerbaijan for many years has been weaponizing. They have been modernizing their military. They have been investing money because they have the money compared to Armenia. And you can't really blame them for that because that's what countries should be doing. And I think Armenia failed um, by not weaponizing and modernizing their military so very much Martial law was declared on the 27th of September, so the many volunteers who had no military experience went to the front line. And, you, and you've seen the documentary, and you've seen when I'm in the front line in Shushi talking to them after the war just yes. ended. And one guy's like, I'm a bank manager. The other one's, I'm a, I'm a mechanic, I'm an architect, a cook. Um, 
And this is what a lot of the soldiers were like. They were just men who believed in the cause. They were passionate about fighting for outside, um, fighting for their nation. Um, that just went to the front line with little experience, with little equipment. You even see in my footage, um, some guys wearing sneakers because they haven't got boots. I was in the bunkers in um, Stepanica watching women, older women who stayed behind sewn up sleeping bags because there weren't enough sleeping bags for the men and it was getting cold. Um, so, yeah, very much there was a difference, a massive contrast between Azerbaijan and Armenia forces militarily. And only that is, like you said, you've, you've seen the film, like I said, and everyone throughout the film just talked about drones constantly. It was a massive threat. And that was what the game changer. My experience as a war marine commander and being in several wars over the years is, I would say, toe to toe, in my opinion, the Armenia would have won if it wasn't for the fact that Azerbaijan had a large resource of drones. Um, and everyone's seen the drone footage online. The Zeris daily uploading Twitter, government sources updating Twitter with um, drone footage with songs and logos and everything. Um, yeah, so really much it was a drone war. So I've seen the documentary very well done, very powerful. And I was surprised at one, well, one of the scenes, because, you know, when you look at you, you're a tough guy, like, the first time I met you, I was like, man, this guy is a tough guy. And then I read your <laughs> background and I thought, boy, I'm right. That is this guy is a tough guy. But there's a part in there where you're actually shedding a tear. And so yeah. it's an emotional documentary. Tell us a little bit about the emotions. I mean, how I feel like this documentary, even for you and the team making it, had some heartstrings pulled. Yeah, 100 percent. Like I say, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a tough man, but I'm very robust as such. Um, but what people forget, and this is, and I've come under attack from a lot of Armenians, actually, from the diaspora, not people from Armenia, just diasporas that attack me, saying that you're trying to make money off the dead soldiers and by this. We've documented history of this documentary to tell the world, to tell a non-Armenian audience. And when I put the projects I work on, I'm passionate about my projects. That's why I do them. It's not about money. And then, in fact, I've been working on this for 12 months and we haven't earned any money yet so far from the projects because we're just trying to get it right, to get it out there. And we need to do build a foundation first rather than just doing a quick turnaround, throwing it out there, getting a little bit of cash and go, thank you very much. So I'm very passionate about this because I spent so long in Armenia, in Artsakh. I met so many people. And the scene that you're talking about is a charity called Miocene. Um, they're one of the charities that the 45 Day Projects is supporting, who do great work, continue to do great work, where they help families who've lost loved ones financially and emotionally. Um, and you can look, people can look them up online, Miocene. And we went to a house of um, a wife who lost her husband. And in the room was his 13-year-old son, his 15-year-old daughter and a mother. And you could tell they, was, they weren't well off. It was a small apartment in Yerevan. And Maria, the girl from Yassine, was delivering money that was donated by the diaspora. And throughout the work I do, is it's not about just turning up, getting what footage you want and just going home. Is I live with these people, I sleep with these people, I eat with these people. It's, it's very much emotional connection I have with these people. And when this woman, she was talking about how great her husband was and how she lost half of her um, and she's keeping the rest, the other half of her children... She then goes to the daughter, go get the flag. And this is what made me really emotional. She goes, go get the flag that was, that was put over the coffin of her husband. And that just had, gave me flashbacks in my time in the military when my friends died and we put our flags over the coffins. And when 
an incident where we had a black hawk, American black hawk that was shot down um, and everyone was killed on it. And we had to go assist Americans and we had to put their flags, American stars and stripes over theirs while we come under ambush by the Taliban to recover the bodies. And so I was having like a bit of a flashback to realise the reality of that this woman's here. She's bringing out all these cakes, all these fruit and everything, trying to feed us. But she's going, she's mourning. But she's still trying that, hospi- that Armenian hospitality. She's trying to give us something. Um, yeah, so for me, it was very emotional. And when people go, what's the toughest part of this project? And it's not about soldiers being shot or killed. Soldiers dying in war is very me, very me blasé saying this to someone who doesn't understand war. But that's part and parcel of a war. You expect that to happen. But when you see the families and the loved ones who are suffering their grief, um, it hits you hard. It's really emotional for me, especially in Artsakh, when the territories were handed over. Um, you've seen the scenes of people burning their homes down. And it's like a lifetime of memories going up in smoke. And to me, these are the scenes that are really emotional. Um, and this is what we're trying to do with 45 Days to Fight for a Nation is humanise what went on during that war, during them 44 days and then post after that. You know, I want to, you've mentioned so many things that I want to dig into here. Number one, the flag. I mean, I, I was always taught, and I don't come from a military background, but I was always taught, don't let a flag touch the ground. Don't let when a flag is down, you pick it up, make sure that the flag sits upright. So, I, I mean, for you, that was an important thing as well about the flag. It really represents a country, correct? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And like you're saying, the flag should never touch the floor, but they do touch the floor. As long as it's not thrown on the floor with disrespect, as long as it's respected at all times. Um, and even other people's flags. Yeah, I, I respect other people's flags because that's what a nation, what symbolised to a certain degree a nation through colours um, as a visual thing. So seeing the Armenian flag everywhere and the, the Artsakh flag, um, for me, do you mean, it just, it, I understand what it means to a lot of people, especially a country like Armenia that's been constantly under threat, um, where many countries around the world still don't recognise genocide. There's a lot of intergenerational trauma amongst Armenians and um, diasporans. So very much that I, un- I understand what the tricolors mean to a lot of people and how important it is. So another thing you mentioned is hospitality. Mm. You went to a country where the people were being attacked. In essence, it was a war, but, and I'm a little, I I don't want to say I'm biased, but I've read a lot of reports and it was the Armenians didn't want this war. Artsakh didn't want this war, but the Azeris really attacked Armenia I'll, I, you tell me what you think about that. But but the point I'm trying to make is these people, w- were they hospitable to you? Were they welcoming to you? I mean, were they suspicious at all? Like, who's this guy? What's this guy doing here? Yeah. Um, so when it comes to who, who started the war um, is in the sense that I think everyone I've spoken to knew this war was going to come. There was in the 90s, the the status of outside was never recognised, was never officialised. So I think in the back of everyone's mind, they knew eventually it would come. And as when you've got a neighbour that's weaponising and modernising their military for many years, they were waiting for their opportunity. And the opportunity came during COVID, when the media were busy reporting COVID. Everyone around the world was busy with their own problems. And then in the USA, you had the Trump election coming up. So the media were preoccupied. So very much, in my opinion, Turkey and Azerbaijan timed it perfectly to go, right, this is our time of opportunity. And off they went um, to 
to exploit the timing and they've done it very cleverly. I think I don't think they expected the war to last 44 days. They probably thought it would last a week to 10 days maximum. But that's credit to the young Armenian soldiers and the old ones that went and stood their ground and go, no, we're going to stand the fight here. Um, but yeah, the hospitality is I used to be a lot lighter. I'm now a lot heavier thanks to the Armenian people um, in a constant feeding of me. And what the most frustrating things with Armenians is they will force feed you all day long. They, they're finished eating, they're done eating, but they're like, no, you've got to eat because you're the guest. I'm like, I'm full, I can't eat. Well, they don't know, eat. Um, so yeah, the thing is, especially people from outside, people from Armenia, a lot of them are, their GDP, their income is very low. But what the, the beauty of the, the people there is that they still try to give you everything as a guest. And throughout my whole time in Armenia and in and outside, People were never suspicious. They had no reason to be suspicious. They very openly welcomed me to tell their stories. And you've got to remember, it's the work I do, like I'm saying, is breadcrumb journalism. You're following the breadcrumbs to get the story. Is that a lot of these people have, have a voice and they feel like no one's telling their voice. They're, no one's sharing that, amplifying their voice. So when they see a British guy like me turn up with a camera, sit down, drink coffee with them, have a laugh with them, joke with them, um, listen to their, their their pain and their worries, is that they very much open up to tell their story because they want to be heard. Um, so very much that's the beauty of having a camera is that you get a snippet of people's lives that you would never, you, you can walk into people's homes that you would never go into um, because the camera allows you to that because people trust you. Um, Mainly the people that were suspicious of me were the diasporans. Well, some of the diasporans who were living thousands of miles away and they had more suspicion than the people that actually physically know me and met me, which is just crazy, um, I think. Because I understand why Armenians, a lot of them are very suspicious about foreigners. They they have a lack of trust for foreigners. Um, but yeah, no, my time in Artsakh in Armenia, I've, I've got so many Armenian friends now, it's unreal. I've got more Armenian friends than I have British friends now um, because I've just invested so much time into it because I'm passionate about telling this story and telling it right. And like you've seen a documentary, and we've got it right. We've got the story right because as a, as a director and as a filmmaker, um, Osko, who's um, an Armenian diasporan from LA, who's our producer, is we spent a lot of time, and AJ Ricard, who's an American, just a full American, a foreigner like me, and Ota, um, who edited it with me. We we spent a lot of time and um, a lot of money to get it right because we need this to be told to non-Armenians. We know Armenians going to want to watch this, but we need non-Armenians to understand the story and the history and what goes on. And like you saw at the beginning of the documentary, we've got five minutes graphics where we tell the history of Nagorno-Karabakh Artsakh um, in five minutes. And it's like, how do you tell a hundred years of history in five minutes from Armenia. It's, it's tough. So we, we've had a lot of challenges, but we, we hope that we've got it right. Um, and we see it, we're trying to get it bigger and better so people can see it around the world. As a diasporan Armenian, I thank you for this work product. Even before I saw the documentary, I, I, I thank you because you went to the front lines with the soldiers that were in the front lines and you know, and, and that's appreciated. So for the people who are saying cruel things about you, I would just say that they need to watch the documentary before they open their mouth, because the documentary tells a story. And you said something that I think is correct, done right. One of the things that I really can't get your attention is even the music. Arthur Hutchins, who did your song for 45 Days, 
beautiful song. I mean, it's a, it, the starting off your viewing with the song already puts people in this emotional kind of state of wow. Talk about yeah. the, the you, we can't let you go without talking about the soundtrack, the 45 day song. Yeah, so um, we've got several songs in there. We're like saying Kachan's Arthur, who was a soldier during the war, who sung that song um, that went a bit viral um, a lot of people. He's now in the USA with us. He's been touring with us because Armenian people, from my experience, the Armenian people, I wouldn't, I, this is, this is my personal um, opinion. Armenians are not aggressive people. They're not really fighters as such they're more artists they're more creative um and so when it comes to music and dancing it's a it's a, it's a, a thing that a lot of armenians can relate to and kachin's songs a lot of people can relate to them um they're all some of his old songs that he sings about and so he we asked him when they reached out to us and said can we do one song for the documentary and we're like well we've got all the music we've got but then i thought no, he, he was a guy, he's a young boy from who's lost his home in Harut. He's he's perfect. Let's make a song then. So let's get it. So I'm very cutthroat and very blunt and direct, um, as many some people know. So he made the song for us, and I was like, no, not good enough. Go back to it again. Went back, he went back about six times. I was like, You're getting there, we're nearly there. And he was getting really like downhearted. I was like, mate, you've got to keep working until it's right. And then I thought to myself, I'm a filmmaker, I'm, I'm the director. <clears throat> I visit I physically know visually what this is going to where that music's going to go so we what we done is we cut out the footage of the last eight minutes sent it to him and go this is the music that you're putting towards the end so you need to get it right um, and then he came back with this beautiful song which is called 45 days war um, and it's so fitting and perfect and you're totally right when you say it. music is massive in the sense that it can spark emotions um, it gives you a feeling so yeah he got it right he done brilliant in the end um, so we're very pleased that, that he's part of this project Emil we are out of time this week on the program I definitely will have you back in a few months as you continue your tour to get your perspective I want to thank you for being with us here on San Joaquin Spotlight airing on Talk Radio 1550 KXCX and CMAC Fresno and Clovis as well as on Anchor FM's Spotify, sponsored by Spotify, Anchor FM's podcast. Emil, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Good meeting. No, thank you, mate. Good meeting, Asko. Great music by Arthur Hutchins. Uh, uh, for people who don't want to, for people who really need, people need to see this documentary. And, you you know, you've got some dates coming up. Um, thank you for all your work. No, thank you very much. I much appreciate it. That's all for this edition of the program. Tune in next week to a new edition.